good evening and welcome, my dear listeners, back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe. I'm your hostess, uh, Karen Tate, uh, author of several books. The latest is Goddess Calling. And I'm also the editor of the new anthology, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape the World, which actually is based on this radio show. And these are conversations we need to foster a new normal. And you know what? It is a beautiful day here at Venice Beach. Uh, The sun is setting, and if you're near the ocean, uh, you can hear our mother breathing with each tide that rolls in and rolls out. Well, you know, tonight's opening snippet uh, is from Celia, and it's from um, her uh, selection called Please Forgive Us. And uh, I think it sort of coincides with tonight's topic, and uh, that is Animals and the Spiritual Imagination with uh, Professor Sabina Magliocco, uh, because we are going to be talking about uh, how important it is that uh, we uh, find sustainability on the earth, and um, and especially animals on the planet, you know, and uh, how they affect us, what they contribute to our life. And uh, Sabina is specifically going to talk about animals in our spiritual imagination. I'll tell you more about that uh, because Sabina is going to be one of the uh, upcoming Joseph Campbell Roundtable uh, speakers, actually this Saturday in Venice. And um, for those of you who can't be at Venice, you will get to hear a good bit of uh, what her talk is going to be on Saturday, so you don't miss out. But first up, I am so glad to have back with us uh, Kathy Pagano. Uh, She is our resident astrologer, and she always brings us uh, the cosmic story on a rather regular basis. And uh, she's here with us kicking off the month of May. And she's going to let us know what's uh, happening, uh, you know, up there in the in the cosmos. So what we should be watching for, and um, how we can best handle it. So Kathy, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's always great to be here. So it sounds like it's a perfect May talk that the professor is going to give because. Um, Right now, the sun is in the sign of Taurus, and it's the most earthy, concrete sign of the zodiac, and it's where we incarnate, if you will, that fiery um, Aries energy that comes to us with the spring equinox. And, um, and And Taurus loves the earth and all the animals in it, and so... To um, work with animal energy, like it sounds like she's going to be talking about, is really important right now. If you look outside, all the all the birds are building their nests, and and the animals are having their babies, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we we just. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we're we're in the season of Beltane and spring, and uh, you know, I think that's that's when our uh, animal. Uh, our animal family, I guess, if you will, uh, if you want to call it that, um, that's when we see them, you know, maybe most alive out there. They're they're very active. <laughs> yes, they are. And it's so important for us to understand um, who they are because, like, the Native people and the Celtic people, they would look at the animals and, and know um, and understand something about life and about our instinctual nature. And for those of us who 
live in Western societies, we live in places that are more attuned to machines often than to people. And um, we go into little cubicles and, and have, you know, fake lighting. And uh, so it's really important on these beautiful, breezy spring evenings to, um, especially if you work all day in one of those buildings, to get out and to really connect with the earth. This is such a beautiful season to do that. Yeah, just unplug. Do yourself a favor and, uh, you know, get away from the email, get away from the the iPhone, uh, you know, just get away from it all and uh, go hug a tree. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the earth and our brains pulse at the same rate, but all of our electronics get in the way. And some scientists are beginning to think that that's one of the reasons why so many more people are sick right now, because we don't have our natural... I guess immunity, you could say, if we're in touch with the earth and the rhythms of our mother, um, it keeps us strong, just like when we celebrate the different holidays in the wheel of the year and we work with those energies and the cosmic energies. It's always good we don't, my friend Carolyn Casey, another wonderful astrologist, who talk about the word disaster as meaning it goes against the stars. And so the more we can entrain with the energies, the better. Well, you know, I think um, when we when we disconnect from nature, you know, because we are a part of it, you know, we forget, though, you know, we, we sort of disregard it, I think, uh, too often as something on the fringes or not relevant to our lives. I mean, after all, it's that text message that we have to, you know, send right now. That's what's the most relevant. I don't know. I think maybe, I, and I mean, this is just anecdotal observation, but um, I, I don't know, Kathy, do you agree? I mean, that I think people are more depressed. Um, you know, we're living in this world that where we're under so much pressure, so much stress, working harder, not getting ahead, um, you know, all the horrible exploitation out there. And, um, you know, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, nature is our natural antidote uh, to all of that ugliness that um, we find we have to endure in this, um, you know, in these times we live in. Yes, most definitely. She's our heal. She's the place to go to heal. And, you know, with Beltane, the whole... The whole energy of Beltane is when the veils between the worlds open and all of the, the divas and the nature spirits come out and play and wake up. And um, that's why when we can attune ourselves to the season, like right now, and we, when, as, as the season goes into summer and then fall and then winter again, as we move with those energies, I always feel like the earth protects us in that way. And yeah. um, so how is the, it was quite a big um, full moon on Deltane weekend this weekend, wasn't it, this past Oh, weekend? it sure was. It was beautiful. Um, I, you know, it, it's always so wonderful when, you know, a, a, a holiday that's so important as Beltane, you know, is in sync with, you know, that sort of cosmic beauty. It's like a statement, you know, she says, I'm here and, you know, I'm undeniable. Just look up and soak me in. <laughs> Yes, most definitely. And, you know, a full moon always occurs in the opposite sign. So this full moon was in Scorpio. And so the sun is in Taurus, the moon was in Scorpio. And so that is such a powerful combination because they're both considered what we call power signs because they concentrate energy. And so as Taurus concentrates Earth energy for us to manifest things, 
Scorpio concentrates emotional energy. So it was a really big weekend to let to, for us to recognize some of our old emotional patterns that hopefully we have really worked on to get rid of the negative ones at least. And we're going to have another chance to work on them this summer when um, Saturn goes back into Scorpio because Saturn was just in Scorpio for the past two and a half years. And then it just sort of dipped into Sagittarius for a couple of months. But it's going to, this summer, it's going to go back into Scorpio. And, and so Saturn always is our test. So everybody watch and see how well you pass the test this summer of, did I handle my emotional patterns with other people? Do I know how to be intimate um, without feeling lost or thrown off center? Um, can I be, you know, can I engage in powerful emotions without hurting other people or hurting myself. So, you know, the Beltane full moon was very much about us really looking at some of the ways that we need to grow. And um, if you noticed in the sky outside, there was such a beautiful, um, Jupiter is very high in the sky right now, especially at sunset. And so Jupiter was affecting it, saying, open up, be curious. You know, look at the dark side of the force, if you will, and the light side of the force and see how they come together. Um, and so it's like the waters that come to the earth. Scorpio is a water sign. So it's about opening up and letting our emotions flow into the things that we really desire and want. And, you know, and it's time, you know, in these next five or six or ten years, I think that people are going to get to the point where they're going to say, I don't want to be in this machine um, society anymore. It's, I always think of the Star Trek shows, the Borg, you know, um, the, the machines that want to come and take you over because we aren't in a very happy society and that's what those big squares that we dealt with for the past three years was all about. It's so fascinating because if you look back to the 60s, it wasn't until after those two planets came together that we had the riots in the cities and that, and we had some of the um, summer of love, that was all after those two planets did their little dance. And so those two planets have done their dance all over again. And even though a lot of juiciness has come out of it, I think the real revolution is on its way. And, well, um, I, and it well, I sure hope so. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, look at everybody. We all know how, how um, racist we still are. We all know how unfair we, things are. If people don't stand up uh, um, under the oppression, then I guess, you know, they deserve the culture they live in. But I think there's enough of us, and especially the younger people, who really have a more creative vision. And um, I know there's a place in Massachusetts I'm going to go visit when I go back there this summer, and they're doing a thing called a transitional town. That's such a tourist thing, I think. And what they're going to do is plant fruit trees in the town and probably get some solar in there. And then they're going to teach people very concrete skills, like how to grow your food, but then how to can it. Yeah. Um, and maybe how to fix things, you know, um, without, you know, what happens if the machines go off? What do, people don't know how to take care of themselves. So these are some of the things that are opening in front of us, I think, as, as the time goes on. 
Well, you're so lucky uh, to be a part of that, you know, and, and I honestly don't know if there's uh, anything like that going on in L.A. I mean, I can't imagine that there isn't somewhere, but, you know, you're you're so right. I mean, I remember, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I sound like, you know, my dad saying, oh, I walked to school in, you know, of five miles and, you know, ten feet of snow. You know, I, I'm sort of doing the same thing here. But I remember we couldn't use calculators in math class. And I think kids can use calculators now in school. They use computers in school. And, you know, it's all fine to a certain point, but it gets us so dependent on technology. You know, I wonder if kids can multiply and divide anymore. Right. Um, you know, even write. I mean, I I work at a job where I see millennials come in all the time and they have to fill out an application. Their handwriting is so bad, and I, I think – you know, uh, they're probably suffering from the same thing I am. I mean, now that I'm on the computer typing all the time, my handwriting is just going to pot. And, yeah, we have lost the ability to do so many of the most basic things, you know, whether uh, even cooking, you know. Um, Something as simple as cooking. I mean, we're so used to just going get fast food. We don't really understand where the food comes from. Um, yeah, we would be a helpless society if society collapsed, I think. Yes. So this is very Tarian theme. You know, the sun in Taurus is about, you know, being concrete, having pe- being peaceful, knowing what you value, knowing your self-worth. And we need to begin to value each other, but also the earth very much so. So that's what the season of Beltane and then Taurus is very much concerned with. And then by the middle of the month, the sun will go into Gemini. And I said I would bring up the fact that we're having another Mercury retrograde. Um, <laughs> and it's going to start on the 19th of May, and it's going to go through June 12th. Uh, but so, of course, we have to remember Mercury retrograde. It just means it, our minds get a little running, a little bit ahead of things, and now it has to slow down and review what we've learned um, or what we haven't learned. And um, and so, once again, Mercury retrograde is always a great time to do anything that begins with R E: relearn, redo, re-experience go over again, you know, and so um, starting now you might discover little things going wrong because it's what we call in the shadow period. Um, it's in, it's going to take place in Gemini, so Mercury rules Gemini. So it's really a good time to examine how we use our minds. And as we were just saying, Karen, we have been training our society not to use our minds. And so where I would, I always say to people, when you're out, talk to people. Don't you know, if we want to change the world, then we have to be the example. Um, and so I, 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 my trickster side likes to come out sometimes and just ask people questions, you know, to get them thinking if you're standing in line someplace rather than um, ignoring them or paying attention to your phone. Um, but during Mercury Retrograde, it's about re-experiencing. And, you know, you were talking about when you were young. We can re-experience or remember things. And so... Um, the more we can spread that out with the people that we end up interacting with, you know, make them think a little, push them a little. What the heck? Um, yeah. You know, if they're going to be sheep, you always need a shepherd with a little dog and a stick to get them going. <laughs> 
Isn't isn't that the truth? <laughs> and you know, we can be priestesses as of the goddess, as we so many of us are, and um, you know, keep this the bigger picture in our minds as we go out in and interact in those personal little ways. And um, sometimes we have a hard time letting that real side of ourselves out. But you know, what the heck? People are going to think we're strange anyway. It's better to be strange in the best way right? <laughs> I, I I so totally agree I so totally agree you know I, I can remember I, I used to be so embarrassed because you know my mother would just strike up a conversation with you know anybody anywhere and uh, now I look at that as an incredible gift because that's not easy to do sometimes you know if you know it, to just strike up a conversation with a stranger it is it's very hard I um and the one, the person who taught me was my Gemini best friend, and that's why since we have so many planets going to Gemini right now, Mercury went into Gemini on the first, and Venus has been there, and and then a, and, and on the twelfth, Mars is going to go into Gemini, and so, and then of course later on, um, on the twenty first, the Sun will be in Gemini. All of this Gemini energy makes us flirt. You know, Venus is. Um, Venus and Gemini love to talk to people and find out about them. And this friend of mine who is a Gemini, she's just curious. And um, that's a wonderful thing to be. A lot of times if I'm not, if I don't talk to people, I realize it's not because I'm I'm not curious about them. Oh, look, they're just there, you know, whatever. And so um, the act of curiosity is so much a part of the Gemini experience. So we go from the Taurian Earth, let's make a garden and go have a lot of delightful food and delightful sensations, to how do we use our minds and, and let's play. And Venus yeah, we should is very <laughs> strong right now. So we need to connect because Venus is all about connection, right? What did you say is very strong right now? Venus. There's Venus. so many parts of astrology that I that we really can't even get into, and, and usually only astrologers talk about it. But one of them is how high up in the sky, um, north or south, um, a planet goes. And just like at, at summer solstice, the sun goes up to a certain point in the northern sky and stands still there, it seems, and then it heads back, back down south just like the sun does in the winter for us when it's down south and it's stuff. So that's called a thing called declination. But anyway, where the sun stops, that's sort of like the the, um, the the mid the place where most planets go to. But every once in a while planets go beyond that point, they do go further north. And Venus right now is, is what we call out of bounds. It's way further. It's a bit further north than that point. So it makes it extra powerful. And of course, oh. Venus, the goddess of love and connection and wisdom, we've really given her, downplayed her role. But you know, we all know that love and connection beats out everything. Okay? Yeah. And that's why patriarchy hates love. And really tried to turn Venus into a little um, pornographic pop prostitute, but she isn't at all. She's yeah, she's just the book. Bo- she's just the. Well, yeah, you know, you think about it, um, she's she's just sort of this boudoir babe, and so she's about sex and beauty, and, you know, patriarchy has told us that sex is nasty and dirty and, and all sorts of taboos attached to it, and beauty's only skin deep, so, you know, and, and so you're a shallow person, you know, if you're, you know, just sort of into beauty, so where does that leave 
um, Aphrodite. If you're, you know, if you are mistakenly uh, thinking that that's that's all there is to her, you know. Right, and it isn't at all. I mean, she trains psyche. She trains the soul to love in the old myth of Psyche and Eros. And even though the patriarchy said, oh, she was jealous and mean, when you have to train somebody and initiate someone into a sacred mystery, they have to go through tests, you know? And you don't turn the initiator into the mean, jealous, you know, bad goddess. You'd say, oh, she's she's teaching this. She's making her a priestess of love. So, yeah, yeah. very much so. You know, Aphrodite, all statues, as you know, show us who the goddess is or the god and what their power is. And Aphrodite's statues always show the body, the naked body. And so she's saying, look, this is holy. What's better than that, right? Yeah, and and even, you know, sacred sexuality. You know, I was reviewing a book the last few days, um, and uh, you know that that's what some of some of the book was about. You know how we've become disconnected from the power that uh, intimacy and sexuality can bring to our lives, and it's really all sort of patriarchy's scheme to keep us divided and to control us and keep us in a fearful place. Because imagine if we all really felt loved and cared for, and we nurtured one another. You know, patriarchy just wouldn't have the hold on so many of us uh, that it does because love will always win out. That's right. And good sex and sacred sex is, you know, is what patriarchy has tried to kill off. And that's why we have so so much violence during sexuality and um, from the men. And so it's it's really up to us, we women, to acknowledge our power and our sexuality and our beauty because Aphrodite doesn't say you have to look like a Hollywood star, you know, starlet. She says, find the inner glow in yourself and there's your beauty. So she's very, you know, she this is a strong goddess. But anyway, the star, Venus, in the sky right now is also very strong. You'll see it. She's going to go retrograde this summer as well, but later on. Um, and she does that every about a year and a half or so. And she's going to meet up with Mars um, three times. She's already read it, um, met up with him once. And so this is a real year where the feminine needs to take the lead. The stars, are, the heavens are telling us, we're telling ourselves this. Everyone's saying, you know, it's time for women to step up. And that doesn't mean, you know, run for office. It means step up. And when you see things that aren't going well, see what you can do about it in your life and in other yeah. people's life without butting in, but just be there, you know. The connection changes everything. Yeah, because, you know, I think when we hear that, sometimes we imagine it means something bigger than than it does. You know, it can mean simple little things, you know. It can mean, you know, helping, you know, the elderly neighbor down the street or, you know, maybe trying to mediate uh, uh, some sort of miscommunication between friends, or um, you know, uh, you know, maybe lifting people's spirits where you work. Um, uh, you know, bring you know, bring in coffee or something. You know, one one morning. Right. I mean, it, I mean, it can be simple things. It doesn't have to mean you know, go run for office and change the world. <laughs> right. You have to well, start you know, somewhere. The, <laughs> right. Well, I think we change the world every time. We are kind and compassionate and loving to people, especially if they're not in a good mood and they're not in that place. 
And if you can switch that energy, and that's the power of Venus and Aphrodite. So in the sky at night, as the sun goes down, look to the west. That's the beautiful evening star, Venus, the goddess of wisdom. And um, pretty soon at the end of this, I don't know quite when, don't mind me, I'm in one of those mind fogs, um, at, you know, at some point she's going to go um, disappear behind the sun and become a morning star again at the end of the year. So, I mean, she, she creates this beauty and this pattern in the sky, and she really has, a, you know, Venus, the planet, has always been part of a deep mythology in all cultures. And so, you know, just even if you go outside and, and vibe on, on Venus, you'll connect to the Earth, as we were talking about in our beginning of our talk. And, um, and you'll connect to, the, to bigger energies than the, the TV or your work, <laughs> your computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, those, I don't know, those things, um, you know, we have to do some of those things, you know, to keep up, to stay in, to stay connected, but um, they sort of, I don't know, they sort of leave you feeling empty. And um, I don't know, I, I think we need to be aware of that, you know, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, really ask ourselves the hard question, you know, do we really have to constantly be, uh, on social media all the time, on email all the time, you know how how is it uh, how is it affecting the quality of our life? You know, uh, is it a deterrent to uh, kids learning better social skills or adults, you know, having better social skills for that matter? Oh, definitely. And Venus is very much about social skills because Venus is the, you know the planet and the goddess both speak to. We need to be in connection. We need to be in community. Um, on Monday, it was my birthday, and um, and my dear friends gave me a surprise party. And uh, my friend's garden has these really six-foot-tall hollyhocks. And I walked in and was really surprised. But they, everyone was hiding in in the you know in the um, flowers, and they looked like a bunch of fairies. It was so great and. They were just so sweet, and they put on their fire show and danced for me, and they did all sorts of things. And it was such a pleasure to know that I have this loving community. And that's what, you know, that's what Taurus, that's what Scorpio, you know, the the full moon was all about was, you know, do we allow ourselves those intimate moments with important people? Yeah. Well, and happy birthday. I didn't realize it was your birthday, but... um, you know, happy birthday from us here at the show. Wow. Thank you. A Beltane baby. I love Beltane. <laughs> well, it makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does. We all have a season we're born into, and um, and this is certainly mine. So, well, um, so, Kat, so that's is there, is... the cosmic story. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. And um, you will be back with us uh, again next month and uh, let us know what's going to be happening uh, in the month of June. Yes, definitely. So everybody remember around the 18th, Mercury goes retrograde. So watch your talk. Watch what you say. Um, we can, You know, the ancient Egyptians knew that words were power. So with everything in Gemini and coming up, Use your words with kindness and care. Good advice, anytime. So, um, yes. Kathy, do you want to tell listeners how they can reach you for readings or about your books or anything else? 
On the web, my website, as we said before, is www.wisdom-of-astrology.com. If you just put Wisdom of Astrology, you'll get another astrologer called Alan Arkin, and he's good, but it's not me. Um, my <laughs> folks are on my website, and of course, I do dream work and counseling and coaching um, and astrology, and I... I have to go next door now and work with my dream group. Okay, well, tell them hi for us, and we look forward to having you back with us in June, Kathy. Have a great month. Okay. Take care. You too. All right. Good night. Good night. Well, as we wait for uh, Dr. Sabina Magliocco uh, to call in, um, here's a word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film entitled Dancing with Gaia. Uh, Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddess as Gaia. Um, it features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. And the DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20. And you can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com. Now, I see um, somebody popped up on the switchboard, and I'm not sure if that's our guest. So I'm going to say hello or maybe see if they have a question, if that's not Sabina. So, hi, is this Sabina? Hi. Yes, it's me. I'm just calling in with Skype. Oh, okay, great. Well, I am so glad to hear from you tonight. And uh, I, I had already uh, prepped uh, listeners a little bit uh, about our show, but um, let me tell them a little bit more about you, Sabina, in the Joseph Campbell Roundtable series, and then we'll uh, jump in uh, to our chat, and I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um great. So, uh, my dear listeners, tonight, as I already told you, the topic is animals and the spiritual imagination. And as uh, Sabina says, uh, throughout history and in many different cultures, animals have been imagined as totems, spirit guides, divine messengers, even goddesses and gods. But how do we imagine our spiritual relationship to other animals today? Uh, Sabina, uh, Dr. Magliocco, as we know her, uh, her work explores this question by examining both mainstream cultural and religious practices and those of contemporary pagans, uh, a group of religions that revive some practices of pre-Christian cultures, finding surprising confluences between the two. Now, um, 
this Saturday, Sabina is uh, part of our Joseph Campbell uh, Roundtable series, and uh, we are so lucky to have her. Uh, besides being a Ph.D., she's a professor of anthropology at California State University in Northridge. She's a recipient of uh, Guggenheim, uh, National Endowment for the Humanities, Fulbright, and Hewlett Fellowships. She's an honorary fellow of the American Folklore Society. She's published on religion, folklore, foodways, festivals, and witchcraft in Europe and the United States. And uh, she's a leading authority on the modern pagan movement. And she's the author of numerous books. And her current research is on animals in the uh, the spiritual imagination. And um, I'm so glad to have her on the show tonight because uh, what we're talking about uh, is uh, the presentation she is going to be giving at the Venice Library this coming Saturday from uh, 11 to 1. And if you're uh, not within driving distance of Venice, well, you are so lucky to hear uh, that what uh, you know what we're going to be talking about at the roundtable tonight on the show. Um, and uh, we also have another roundtable coming up toward the end of the month, but instead of it uh, being in Venice, it's going to be in Orange County at the Goddess Temple of Orange County. And uh, that topic on May 23rd uh, is with uh, Gianna Ciccelli. Uh You might recognize her. She's been here on the show talking about the wonders of despacho rituals. But uh, we're going in a different direction on the 23rd. Um, uh, Dr. Ciccelli, uh she has a BA in sociology at, from UC Santa Cruz, and uh, she's going to be talking about the sociology of religion, uh, specifically differentiating magic and witchcraft from religion. So uh, I'm so happy to be hosting these Joseph Campbell roundtables. I think they're so important, and they're so much fun, and uh, they're so informative. So this month, you know, we have these two wonderful talks from these two wonderful ladies. And uh, thank you so much, Sabina, for your time tonight and for, you know, coming to Venice on Saturday to, uh, you know, give the talk at the roundtable. Thank you for inviting me, Karen. It's a pleasure. So, Sabina, what, um, what's, you know, what got you interested in this topic to begin with? Well, as some of my readers and fans may know, I've always been a giant animal worm ball. I have always been interested in animals. Um, when I was a young youngster, um, uh, in my teens, I did some work for the Cincinnati Zoo as a junior zoologist, and I got involved in wildlife rehabilitation. And I worked at a nature camp when I was in college where I did wildlife rehabilitation. Um, this was basically taking orphaned and injured animals that um, like baby rabbits and baby possums and raising them until uh, they can be moved to a facility where they can learn to uh, be independent and live on their own. So I've always had a strong interest in animals and um, I've always looked for a way to integrate that interest with my scholarship. And um, at this point, you know, after after doing a lot of other projects, I have figured out a way to integrate my interest in animals uh, with with the rest of my scholarship. But what really got me down this road, what really got me started down this road, was back in the summer of 2011 when my cat, Iggy, who is now Iggy of blessed memory, but at the time she had been diagnosed with um, a cardiac illness with, with heart disease, essentially, kitty heart disease. 
And so I spent a lot of days that summer in the waiting room of a veterinary cardiologist's office. And as you might or might not know, these are not very happy-making places because they're filled with very anxious pet owners. Um, I don't exactly know how this happened, but other pet owners started telling me stories. I guess I started chatting with some of the other people that, um, that were in the waiting room because I myself was pretty anxious. And they started talking to me about their pets and about pets that they had had in the past who had passed away and about their spiritual relationships with these pets. And the stories that they told were really amazing. They talked about reincarnated pets. They talked about seeing their pets for a while after their pets had died. And that's really how I began to see that there was a, a great deal of, um, of creativity and of, uh, of stuff to be mined in this yeah. area. Yeah, I can I can see where there would be, you know, because it's this uh you know, it's it's a great mystery, isn't it? You know, our our beloved pets, you know, they can't really you know, they communicate with us to a certain extent, but uh like with you're just describing, we do hear so many of those stories. You know, it's it's one of these um, you know, uh, you know, one of these mysteries that uh uh, it, it would be wonderful if if we could more thoroughly understand. Now, Sabina, I I know you know you uh, your work is uh, you know just been you know you uh, focused on globalization of festivals in Sardinia and you know you work with you know witchcraft and religion and uh, healing in Italy and you know paganism across the United States. Do you think this interest in animals, um, you know, this closeness? Is it more inherent maybe uh, in the pagan community, or do you find it's it's kind of a universal thing? Well, the research that we did focused, that my students and I did, focused not just on pagan religions, but on members of many different religion, religious communities here in the contemporary United States. And closeness with animals certainly is not something that is unique to modern pagan religions. We also know that indigenous religions, religions that live very close to the earth, the religions of traditional people, um, have very complex um, ideas about animals and the spiritual imagination. Our whole idea about totem animals, for example, is something that comes to us from the indigenous religions of the Americas, in which many societies had uh, animal symbols associated with particular lineages, with particular clans and moieties. Uh, and those animals were not just considered symbols of those groups of people. They were also considered to be relatives of those groups of people um, hmm. and had a number of spiritual um, taboos and rituals associated with them. So we know that in traditional religions, animals play a very important role. But that has changed, I think, or that did change, uh, according to historian Richard Bullitt, domestication and then the process of commodifying animals, which is something that has happened in the West, is something that changed humans' relationships to animals. It changed the way that humans saw animals. Whereas in the early days of domestication, as humans were, for example, domesticating dogs, and we now think that that happened somewhere around 30,000 years ago, uh, humans and dogs might have been seen as very much on the same plane, spiritually and in other ways. 
as animals became used for a lot of human purposes, and as we then see the rise of agribusiness, the commodification of animals for food, for use in laboratories, for furs, for use in clothing, um, and also as part of the pet industry, we also see a corresponding distance between humans and animals. Um, certainly in Western religions, certainly, for example, in Christianity, uh, there's the idea that nature and along with it animals have been put here for humans to watch over and according to some interpretations to use. Um, so humans are... I, I know when... Uh, well, well, when I interviewed uh, Barbara Walker, I, rem I remember one of the things that stuck out in my mind when she um, was saying how she had um, transitioned into becoming atheist was uh, when she was a little girl and her dog died and she talked to the uh, the family minister or priest, you know, because she was in grief mm -hmm. and she asked mm -hmm. if the dog was going to go to heaven and, you know, the priest told her, well, certainly not. And, you know, she said from there on out she was really sort of done with organized religion. Um, you know, I, that's, you know, that's one of the things I, I guess that's why I asked about, you know, are pagans different because if religion religions are sort of, you know, teaching that animals are just here for us to use uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, there being a more intimate uh, relationship. Um, you know, I, I, I just wondered, you know, with the, with the patriarchal religions, do we, do we find, uh, you know, that Christianity, say, for instance, um, you know, the, the, you know, people look at the animals not with that, with that intimate connection, but uh, you know, there's something. The pet is something that we own. Uh, they're, you know, right. they're they're our property as opposed to huh. something else. I, I think you know what I'm trying to yeah. say. I know exactly what you're trying to say, and I think that uh, not only the patriarchal religions, but the capitalist system that commodifies animals has contributed to that particular view. It is advantageous to capitalism to look at animals as property because then we don't have to worry about things like factory farms. We don't have to worry about all of these practices that are profoundly uh, damaging and, and harmful to animals. We can think only about our own convenience. But what actually surprised me in my data is that across the board, we had over 500 respondents to our survey, for example, and across the board, 81% of my respondents, regardless of religious practice, believe that animals have souls. Let me say that again. 81% of respondents, regardless of their religious beliefs, of the religion that they identified with, said that they believe that animals have souls. And so what that got me thinking about was not just how different the pagan religions are from patriarchal religions, but also how people in patriarchal religions construct vernacular cosmologies that sometimes really contrast with those of the religion that they identify with. In other words, they are willing to depart from their religion in certain um, cosmological areas, especially when it comes to pets. So this is very interesting. You know, I had a number of people, I interviewed a number of people and had a number of people respond to me uh, who had experiences similar to Barbara Walker's. They lost 
a pet, a beloved pet, as children and ask a member of an established religion or a parent, you know, will I be reunited with this beloved animal? And they got different kinds of answers, most of which were negative. But the way that they chose to respond to these answers was sometimes different from from the answer that Barbara Walker gave you. In other yeah. words, some of them chose not to believe this story. And others, for example, I had one woman who had this same experience, uh, or rather, her, her dog had not yet died, but she was wondering about what ha- what would happen to her dog when he did die and whether they would be reunited in heaven. And various adults told her, no, dogs don't go to heaven. Uh, they have no souls. Well, this little girl who grew up Catholic uh, had heard that you could baptize an animal or, or that you could, I'm sorry, that you could baptize a person, that, that a lay person could baptize somebody uh, in an emergency. And so she decided to get hold of some holy water and baptize her dog <laughs> to make sure that her dog would go to heaven. So it's these kinds of stories that I'm really interested in because they show the ways that people are willing to depart from that official religious ideology, especially when they have strong emotional relationships with animals. I well, do yeah, think you think about, you, you think about the pet. I mean, you know, your pet loves you unconditionally, you know, and for some people, you know, when they come home from work or school or whatever it is, you know, uh, the pet may be the only one that greets them and sits with them and is, uh, you know, I mean, and we know how our, our pets treat us to think that there's nothing there, uh, you know, inside that little body, you know, that it's... Um, uh, you know that it's that's not a, a sentient being. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I I, I just it, it seems like you'd be awfully dense to think that there's nothing there and it isn't worthy to go beyond. You know, to the next existence, whatever that is. No, I I think that that is exactly the sentiment that so many of my respondents expressed. Now, when you think about pets, you have to think that. In according to a 2010 survey, so this, this data is already five years old, there are 45.5 million dogs in U.S. households. In other words, 45.5 million U.S. households own at least one dog. And 38.2 million households own at least one cat. So the number of people who are having that experience that you're talking about, Karen, where maybe you come home and your pet is the one who greets you, your pet is the one who loves you unconditionally, um, millions of people are having these intimate experiences with domestic animals. And I think that this is one of the things that is driving a real change in the way that people are... um, reevaluating the place of animals in their cosmologies, that we have these very intimate relationships now with animals in a way that perhaps we didn't have in the past. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking, too, you know, I mean, I've heard of people who have had um, uh, those out-of-body experiences where, you know, uh, what do you call them? You know, you, you know, a near-death experience, that's it. And, uh-huh. you know, you, you, you see uh, your loved ones waiting for you on the other side, and sometimes those loved ones are your pets, <laughs> yes. you know. Um, 
So, uh, so when you say this, you know, uh, the spiritual imagination, um, maybe define that a little bit. The, you know, the spiritual imagination of Americans, for instance. When I talk about the spiritual imagination of Americans, I'm talking about how Americans imagine their spiritual world, how they believe the world is organized, um, how they relate to the world in a spiritual way, and does that world include animals, and if so, what role do animals play in that? That's what I'm trying to get at here. Right. Well, and would you say that maybe a difference between contemporary and ancient people um, uh, well, for instance, well, let me let me let me say it a different way. Um, recently, when I was interviewing Adrian Mayer, who uh, did a, a recent book on uh, warrior women, and also Jeannie yeah. Davis Kimball <clears throat> on the Amazons, uh-huh. and they uncovered some of these mummies of warrior women who had these tattoos on their bodies, and yeah. um, and. Uh, you know, uh, material goods in their graves, and they were often like you know antlers or uh, symbols of of lions. Uh, I mean, to the point where these animals were maybe even tattooed on their body. So I wonder right. if maybe in ancient times um, it it was more likely people. Uh, maybe there was some shamanistic element that existed maybe more often than in contemporary society. Um, or is, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying that anecdotally, you know, because I most people I know don't consider themselves shaman and go on vision quests with animals, you know. Uh, but they do, you know, love their pets. Like, I, I mean, when my cat died, I grieved more for my cat than I, than I grieved for some human people, you know. So I, I yeah. understand that intense connection. But it's different than in ancient times, I think, maybe. It is very different from it, than in ancient times. I mean, it is difficult to know beliefs from grave goods. It is almost impossible. But I think archaeologists are correct when they hypothesize that people in ancient times looked at animals differently. I think that in ancient times, animals had a different role in the spiritual imagination in that they were probably, we find a greater predominance, for example, of these wild animals, as you say, antlers, lions, powerful animals in, for example, the grave goods and the symbolic representations of ancient peoples. We don't find that as much in modern representations of animals, particularly in spiritual contexts, except among the modern pagan religions, and that's because modern pagan religions are trying to recapture some of this older, more enchanted way of looking at and relating to animals, including shamanistic practices in which people um, have animal spirit guides and journey to the realm, to an an imaginary spiritual realm, or, or perhaps a real spiritual realm, who are we to tell, uh, in which animal spirits can be communicated with. They communicate with animal spirits uh, much in the way that ancient cultures did. So our relationship with pets in the modern world is very different from uh, what we see in these grave goods. And yet, we know that ancient peoples also had intimate relationships with animals. I don't know if either of these scholars discussed with you some of the early burials that we have evidence of, for example, there's a 9,000-year-old burial from uh, Crete, I believe. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Cyprus. 
uh, of a woman with a cat. Uh, there is an early fox burial from Israel where a person is buried with a fox cub that was pretty clearly a pet. And of course, there's lots and lots and lots of dog and horse burials in which it is very clear that these dogs and horses were not there as food. They were not food items. They were companions to the person who was buried in the tomb with their grave goods. So we know that even in ancient times, people had these, these intimate relationships with animals as well as these relationships with animals that had great symbolic meaning for them. Yeah, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, and also, and also today, um, you know, we use these animals. I, I'm thinking of Sepmet, for instance, or Bast. You know, they're they're archetypes that, you know, we, uh, you know, we we want to maybe embody the qualities that um, you know they represent. But then that also makes me think. I, I would. You know, I assume that the way we probably look at, say, Arc, uh, uh, Sepmet or Bass today, if we're looking at them as archetype, um, that's probably, uh, well, I don't know, you tell me. Do you think that's different um, than how the ancient Egyptians, for instance, looked at Anubis or Sepmet or, you know, um, Horus the falcon-headed god? You know, where, do you think they looked at them more as totem animals or... Um, do, can we know the difference? We may not be able to know because we may not know enough about how how ancient Egyptians thought about these animals. I don't think that they thought of them as totems. I think it is pretty clear that they thought of them as gods. A, a totem animal is an ancestor animal that stands for a particular social group, like a family, a lineage, um, a group of families. We know that that's not the way that ancient Egyptians looked at these animals, that they were deities for them. But it's possible that these deities developed out of a uh, less complex form of society in which they might have originally been associated with a particular family or group of families. We just don't know. Okay. We just don't know. Because you know, I'm, I'm, Go ahead, I'm go sorry. Ahead. Well, I was going to like, for instance, Horus you know, the hawk, um, you know, uh, would you want to have the attributes uh, of a hawk, you know, the keen eyesight, the ability to hunt? Um, I, I see, though, where the totem is really different than um, maybe taking on the attributes of an animal like maybe a shaman would do or, or we do uh, when we look at the animals as archetypes. Right. I think that when we look at the animals today, when we look at these ancient animals or, or even animals in a modern context, we are more likely to think of them as personal symbols. In other words, then for most of us, uh, for most people, uh, they're not deities, they're not totems, but they are symbols of something that we want. So people might uh, want to take on, for example, the qualities of Horus because he is far-seeing and keen-sighted and, you know, all of those things associated with him. Or they might want to take on some of the courageous and protective qualities of Sekhmet. And so Sekhmet becomes sort of a a guardian goddess uh, for them. This is certainly very true of modern pagans. When modern pagans think about animals uh, spiritually, they 
uh, often associate them with particular goddesses and gods, and so they take them on. They take on. They want to take on the attributes of the goddess or god associated with that animal, or they think of those animals as somehow symbolizing qualities that they themselves want to have. Well, you know, you're you're making me think about uh, this wonderful day-long lecture that the Getty put on uh, a couple years ago out in Malibu, and it was all on Aphrodite. And they had scholars from all around the world came and gave papers on Aphrodite from different perspectives. And, you know, one of the most interesting ones for me was how they were showing, this Italian woman had done this research in Cyprus and some other places that I can't remember right now, but I think around the Mediterranean area on Aphrodite, and Aphrodite's association with cats. And what was interesting was she she speculated that Aphrodite was so was closely associated with cats because Aphrodite is about persuasion and attraction and cats well you know cats spray cats put out that scent and oh. you know I hadn't it had that hadn't even occurred to me before and I wonder if you've ever heard that um and if you have any ideas aside from what I just said, why we so often see goddesses with lions, you know, like Cabelli with the two lions on either side of the throne. You know, what's that all about? Well, that's a very interesting question, Karen. I had not heard this theory about um, about Aphrodite being associated with cats because of their persuasive qualities. But I do know that the ancient Greeks saw Bast, the Egyptian cat-headed goddess, as they called her the Egyptian Aphrodite, probably because she was also associated with procreation, with sexuality, with uh, attraction, feminine attraction. Um, So the Greeks tended to understand other people's gods and goddesses in terms of their own gods and goddesses and kind of you know, syncretize them, mush them together like that and say, oh, yeah, that's just like our Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. So I, that's how I thought of that association, but I had not thought of, uh, of of the association with cats as sort of persuasive, charming, seductive animals in a way, if you will. In terms well, it's of, also, uh, but, well, but, but, it, but there's also sort of this um, sort of um, this this more maybe primals the word because you know when cats spray that's about marking their territory that's about putting out their scent um uh-huh. and Afro- and 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 she was making that connection with Aphrodite who she saw as a goddess of persuasion and attraction so right. you know, I, you know I don't know if I explained it exactly right the first time but no, I think maybe I, I did better I, that time <laughs> I, I think you did. I think maybe I um, I wasn't as focused on the spraying of pheromones. Um, yeah. Because that's largely a male cat activity. But, of course, we see that in the big cats as well. I mean, you've seen lion spray at the zoo. Yeah. I have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I and that, that's, that can be pretty intense. <laughs> so so it, that might be something. But the, the, the other thing that comes to mind in terms of goddesses associated with lions is the fact that um, that the lionesses in a pride of lions 
are the ones who do a lot of the hunting. You know, they're the center of the pride. Prides are um, prides are matrifocal societies, and so are large colonies of house cats. The society tends to be clustered around queens, in other words, uh, fertile mothers and their offspring. So it might be a mother and her daughters that form the core of the pride, and then there's a male who comes in, and he's the one who fertilizes all of the One or two males will come in, and they will be the resident males until some new males come in and chase them off. But the, the, the core of the pride is the females, so it's possible that there's some connection between that and these early goddesses that we see connected with lionesses like Sekhmet or uh, Cybele. This is another one that you mentioned who is often portrayed as flanked by two lions. Well, and, and also, too, I wonder if it maybe has something to do with maybe early attempts at domestication um, of of the animals as well, uh, you know, because we were starting agricultural societies, and um, could that have been, you know, like animal husbandry in a way, you know? Um, maybe that could have also been a part of, like the mistress of animals, um, yes. uh, you know, uh, well, name that we have for some of the goddesses. Right. My guess is that the mistress of animals is even pre-domestic. I think she comes before domestication because she is, the mistress of animals is like the all-mother. She is the mistress of the animals because she controls their life and reproduction and it's the goddess who controls them and not people. Once you have the domestication of herd animals, uh, and this is considerably later than dog domestication, so it's about 10,000 years ago, uh, then humans are controlling that reproduction. Humans are controlling their um, uh, their numbers in a way that didn't happen when humans were dependent on hunting, and so really had to had had to depend on, from their point of view, a supernatural force to make sure that the animals would would be there, that the hunters would be able to. Um, kill them, that there would be enough meat, that there wouldn't be an, a famine among the animals that would then lead to you know, decreasing numbers and a famine among humans. That was all very precarious. So to me, the mistress of animals seems to be more connected to that than to early domestication of these hoofed animals. Now, when you right. talk about cat, cat domestication, that's much more complex. And in fact, scientists there, there are many scientists who argue that cats have really only been domesticated in the last 150 years or so. And that really? they're still not fully, yes, not fully domesticated. Because... Now, when you say that, cats, though, Sabina, are you talking about our house cats or are you talking about the yes, big cats? No, big cats have never really been domesticated. Big cats can be tamed, individual big cats can be tamed, but we have not domesticated any of the large cats. But we have sort of kind of, maybe, domesticated house cats, or maybe they have domesticated themselves. There's quite a bit of really interesting literature right now on the process of domestication. How did, 
how did these relationships between humans and dogs, cats, and other animals like hoofed animals on which we depend for food, how did those relationships develop? Now, the old model was that humans decided to go out there and domesticate themselves some animals. But the new DNA evidence actually shows that that's not how it happened and that the process was much more complex. It took a much longer time. It happened around the same time in different parts of the world. So it was really part of the process of co-evolution of humans and animals and that in many cases, animals had some agency in this. In other words, animals exercise some choice of their own. Hmm. They chose. They chose. And humans chose. So that really changes the way that we look at this process from one in which humans are the, uh, let's say, the conquering species. We go out, we decide we're going to domesticate us some of this and some of that and some of the other, and we impose our will on the animal kingdom. The, the new evidence suggests that it's a very different process and that it's really a process where these two groups of beings evolve together, develop interdependence, and some animals make a choice to allow themselves to be domesticated in exchange for some of the benefits that they gained from living in human society. Well, and can't you see that a cat would be the perfect animal uh, that that fits that description? (laughs) You know, I mean, as independent as our cats can be, um, you know, they have their own mind. I I, I often think that they're, you know, they're, they're not these, you know, I love dogs, but, you know, I love cats more. You know, cats aren't these slobbering idiots that dogs sometimes <laughs> tend to be, you know. Um, cats have, they're showing. You're going to have a lot of comments on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. They know I, I, you know, I love the dogs and the cats. I just prefer the cats. But you know what I mean. You know how cats know. are. Cats have that dignity about them. You know, they're, um, they're not just in it to please you, you know, it's about, you better please them as well. It's much more, I don't know, sometimes it seems like it's almost a more um, uh, evolved or reciprocal relationship, but maybe it's just been the cats I've had. I don't know. Well, I think think you're right, and I think that scientists would agree with you that, um, for example, the DNA of modern cats is really not very different from the DNA of the first cats that were domesticated about 10,000 years ago in North Africa. There's very, very little difference, whereas if you compare wolf and dog DNA, there are some differences. I mean, they can interbreed. It's not dramatic differences, but they are considered different species. There's actually very little difference between the African uh, wildcat that was first domesticated uh, probably in ancient North Africa and modern cats because there's been less evolution, less fewer years of evolution, Uh, and just less change to the species. We also know that among modern cats, even among the modern cat breeds, breed animals like uh, Persians, for example, or Siamese, um, those breeds differ, again, relatively little from the modern, uh, let's say, street cat or feral cat. Um, And cats are much more likely to, um, to run away and mate with 
a non-pedigreed cat and produce those animals that sort of revert to revert to type. You know, they're they're non they're non-pedigreed animals. So with um, with cats, yeah, I think they're they're a great example of this process of coevolution and agency choice in domestication. In that um, they do approach us almost as peers, and yeah. it's very clear that oftentimes animals it, it it is the cat that chooses to come into your house and to be domesticated but only as long as it's convenient for him or her. When they want to go out, it's their choice. They decide to go out. Yeah. Um, I, 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 this, is, this is so fascinating. Um, I, I wonder, Sabina, um, or have there been any developments that uh, might lead to some reevaluation of where uh, animals um, or, you know, are placed in our cosmology? Well, definitely all these DNA studies that show how much of human DNA is actually shared by other mammals. And also uh, recent studies of animals' limbic systems. The limbic systems are the ones that uh, control the emotions. It's part of our neurological system. Again, there are very many similarities between humans and other mammals uh, in terms of our limbic developments. Um, many, many studies of learning abilities, for example, among the higher primates, chimpanzees, gorillas, uh, orangutans, and bonobos, very, very similar to uh, those of humans. But even the studies of learning abilities among dogs uh, uh, show that there are many more similarities between humans and animals than was previously thought. So that what, what, what scientists are talking about today is not a difference a, a dramatic difference in kind, but sort of a continuum where there's a difference in degree, for example, but not in kind. Um, animals are known to have many of the same emotions that humans have. They may not have the kinds of complex emotions that we have, um, but they certainly feel fear, they feel anger, they feel love. Uh, animals that live in social groups can feel jealousy or envy. Uh, and these are these are fairly complex emotions that are shared across species. I think that this reevaluation of uh, these qualities in animals are leading to a real change in science in the way that animals are seen. And that we can no longer make statements like animals are not sentient because they have no language, animals have no feelings, they don't feel pain. We now know that all of those things are false. And as a result. I think people are reevaluating spiritual questions about animals. In other words, if animals are so much closer, so much more similar to humans than we thought, then do they have spiritual lives and do they have a place in our spiritual life? Do they have can we say that we that they have souls therefore? Well, and also too, don't you think then the next question is um, if if we're really getting to the point where we are thinking more in those terms, then maybe, just maybe, um, as we evolve, as humans evolve, then, you know, we can do away with the factory forms and the suffering that these poor animals go through to, uh, you know, to feed us. You know, maybe there'll be a vegan, uh, you know, evolution or something. 
Well, it certainly begs the question, doesn't it? Because as science discovers more and more how animals are like us, how we we are animals, right? We tend to think, oh, animals are like us. No, we're animals too. So as as this becomes clearer and clearer, the justification for enslaving animals through factory farms and treating them like objects, the justification for that seems thinner and thinner. So the question then becomes, what are we going to do about that? How right. how will we then um, actualize change in the world in harmony with these new discoveries that we're making about the nature of animals? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think that, um, of course, there are many people who are vegetarian and vegan, but I'm not sure that our society is ready to completely embrace veganism as the solution to that. Yeah. I think another yeah, I, thing that I hear more and more from people is um, is more attention to buying meat that is responsibly sourced, buying meat that does not come from factory farms, uh, that comes from situations in which the animals are treated with care, are treated humanely, are not made to suffer, um, are not slaughtered, but you know, you're know you still eating animals. And for many people, that's just not acceptable once they understand how much we actually have in common with them. Yeah, I, I mean, because I, I've had one uh, one person on the show who... Uh, you know, was talking about factory farms, and uh, you know they made the the comment that you know the suffering that the animal goes through with the factory farm, the fear and everything that you know the the emotions that they go through, that you know then when we eat the animal, we have to think about are we internalizing that as well? I mean, you know that's you know maybe that's a crazy thought, but you know I don't know it oh, gives me pause. I think it's a good question, and I think it's part of that that thing that I'm looking at. What role do animals play in our spiritual imagination? Exactly as we become more aware of the fact that animals do feel feelings, then we must ask ourselves questions, or people do ask themselves questions like, are we internalizing that when we consume an animal that has experienced those horrors? Yeah, so um, do you think there's some religions that might be ahead of others, um, you know, in how they consider animals and maybe passing that along to uh, their congregations? Yes, I do think so. Um, for example, Buddhism. In Buddhism, um, animals are considered to have souls. Not only that, but animals incarnate into one another and they're, they're, part, of the, um, they're part of the wheel of life. Many Buddhists, in fact, do not eat meat because they do not want to consume other beings that are on that wheel of life along with human animals. Hinduism as well. Buddhism and Hinduism, though, both have a sort of evolutionary um, perspective in their narratives of reincarnation. Therefore, lower animals like insects, let's say, would be um, reincarnating if they have lived a good life into higher animals and human beings who misbehave uh, could be punished in a future incarnation by being reincarnated, in, reincarnated into, let's say, a lowly animal that is not considered, um, that is considered to lead a miserable life, a worm or something like that. Uh, but these differ significantly from the stories 
that modern pagans tell about animals, uh, and that many people outside the pagan movement are also telling about animals and animal reincarnation. Uh, in these stories, animals reincarnate to be with their loved ones. So, for example, I've heard many stories from pet owners about dogs or other pets whom they think were reincarnations either of previous pets that they owned or of people. So people telling me, for example, I know that my dog is a reincarnation of my father because he came into my life right after my father died or that my father sent this animal to watch over me after he had passed on um, and that part of his soul is in this animal. So these are very different ways of thinking about reincarnation and animals. And we find many of them in the pagan movement, but we also find some of them in, uh, in people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious or who consider themselves adherents of other faiths that are willing to depart from the official teachings of their religion when it comes to the way they think of animals and their spirituality. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, uh, Roy, my husband, um, he he totally believes that our cat Isis is reincarnated from our previous cat, um, who we called Kitty. And, uh, you know, just like what you said, Sabina, the exact same thing. You know, she uh, she was born right about the perfect time. It would have taken, you know, when, when Kitty died, it was like, uh, you know, the time it takes for a litter of kittens to be born. And here she was. And, you know, here here's Isis. And she does so many of the exact same things that Kitty did. I mean, he's absolutely sure she came back to us. And I have a good friend who believes that a cat that she had in her life was, um, you know, the, the, her reincarnated lover, um, you know, who had passed away. And, you know, sometimes you tell people stuff like this, and, you know, they think you have a screw loose. <laughs> but maybe it's hey, becoming you know, more the norm. <laughs> I have hundreds of stories like this, Karen. So, you know, obviously a, a sample of 500 is not... Um, perhaps representative or it doesn't cover, you know, everybody. But I think these stories are much more common than people are willing to admit. I think people are uh, sometimes embarrassed to talk openly about these feelings, these beliefs that they have because they might be considered quote-unquote crazy. But I think that they're much more common than you might think. Yeah. So is there, a, you know, are there any of the religions that maybe... Um, you know, still sort of treat the animals on on sort of the maybe the lowest possible plane. You know, would those be the religions that maybe still do animal sacrifice, like at Ramadan or something like that? Well, there are a number of cultures that uh, that still practice animal sacrifice, and it's it's not just um, it isn't just Islam, and I think it would be. Um, Feast of the Sacrifice and not Ramadan, the Eid al-Fitr, uh, where they would be sacrificed. But, uh, but for example, the idea of sacrifice is also present in members of a number of Christian religions. So, for example, Armenians uh, will often, I mean, Armenians living in urban areas do not sacrifice animals. But they might, for example, buy a lamb and cook a lamb dinner and invite a lot of people over 
to share that lamb dinner uh, in order to um, have good luck if somebody gets a new job or when somebody gets married. I've also heard of people taking an egg and, for example, breaking the egg um, to bless a new car or having the car run over, the new car run over the egg, smooshing it flat, and that becomes the sacrifice that inaugurates the car. So that idea is still very much alive among some people, although, again, particularly in urban areas, it's not easy to, to do animal sacrifice. Um, and the, let me just put it this way. Animal sacrifice in and of itself is not an indication that people don't give spiritual importance to animals. In fact, in some cases, people could be giving greater spiritual importance to animals in animal sacrifice than people do who go to a supermarket and buy a package full of, um, I don't know, boneless chicken. Because when religions practice animal sacrifice, there, there is actually a spiritual belief there. The animal is being sacrificed so that it can give some of its energy, so that its energy may be offered to the gods. And that implies some kind of spiritual belief about the animal's energy, its soul, and its importance to a deity. When you're just, you know, when you're not doing that, but you're buying chicken from a supermarket, are you even thinking about the yeah. soul of that animal, the energy of that animal. So I, I don't want to say, and I, I don't want to rank religions as better or worse or more or less advanced in this. I would say that they differ and that in each religion, animals have a different role to play in the spiritual imagination. All right, that makes I don't know sense. If that makes sense. No, no, it does. It 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 really does, and and I and I think that was a, a good point you made about you know how the animal sacrifice, you know, fits into it because I think the knee jerk reaction about animal sacrifice is, um, yes, of course you're doing a sacred ritual, but um, you know, it, but it, you know, I I think most people would think if they if someone is doing animal sacrifice, they really have little regard for the animal, and that's probably not true. Exactly. You know yeah. it. So aside from like maybe our eating behavior, like we've already talked about, um, do you think people's spiritual beliefs about animals might change um, their behavior in other ways? Well, this is a very interesting part of my study because what I'm trying to tease out of the data right now is the relationship between people's spiritual beliefs about animals and their behavior. And I have some interesting statistics here. I compared... Um, members of modern pagan religions with uh, non-pagans. And I found that um, actually there aren't that many differences between the members of these two groups in terms of their behavior change. Uh, I think across the board, diet is the main way that people change their behavior because of their spiritual beliefs about animals. So 30% of my pagan respondents responded that they had changed their diet in some way due to their spiritual beliefs about animals, whereas 22% of non-pagan respondents had changed their diet because of their beliefs. Um, okay. 20, so, and that, you know, 30% is about a third. So about a third of my pagan respondents uh, became vegan, vegetarian, or otherwise changed their diet because of their beliefs. And 22% of non-pagans 
did that. And that, that's, again, 22% is almost a quarter. So people are willing to change their diets, and they're also willing to change their consumer habits, at least some of them are. 22% of pagans reported changing their consumer patterns, in other words, buying things that were more environmentally friendly, not mm-hmm. buying things that were made with fur, not buying things made of leather uh, because of their spiritual beliefs about animals. Uh, non-pagans, that number was about 18%, 18%. So again, not a huge number, but you know, getting up there. Yeah. Uh, the numbers, were, and, and I, I've got other things here. I don't know if you want me to kind of go through the list. And well, I was, the- well, yeah, you, you know, throw out a few. Um, but one of the other things I was thinking about was I wonder if hunting is uh, is maybe um, something that may be going down. Uh, was that possibly uh, one of a, a category in your study that you asked about? I didn't specifically ask about hunting behavior. Um, These categories are categories that came out of the data itself. In other words, I asked about, have you ever changed your behavior because of your spiritual beliefs about animals, and how have you changed that behavior? And then these categories came out of the data itself. So I didn't have a question about hunting. Um, I think that hunting is an interesting case, though, because, again, like animal sacrifice, we have some conceptions about it that may not accurately reflect the attitudes of people who do hunt. So we tend to think of hunters as people who don't have regard for animals. And in the case of people who participate, for example, in canned hunts, hunts mm-hmm. where captive animals are shot at, I, I would say that, yeah, that's probably a pretty good guess. But only a small percentage of hunters participate in that canned hunting. Most hunters, um, you know, hunt deer and other ungulates, uh, perhaps pheasant and and, uh, birds like that, hare. Uh, They do it only during the season that that animal must be hunted during. Uh, They adhere to all kinds of laws. They get permits. They follow regulations. And for a lot of them, it is really a way to feel closer to nature and to get back to the land as well as to continue family traditions that might go back, in some cases, hundreds of years. So I had responses from hunters who felt that there was a spiritual connection between them and the animal that they were hunting. Uh, and that there was a kind of exchange of energy there hmm. that made the act more sacred than we might assume. That's interesting. Well, and, and I can't help but think about the person who goes out there and uses a compound bow or these, you know, um, I don't know what other type of, you know, super-duper weapons. Um, you know, if they were out there with like a bow and arrow, where the I guess where I'm saying where the animal had a fighting chance to get away, um, you know, as opposed to um, you know some high-powered uh, machine. Uh, that's not the right word, but uh, instrument, uh, whatever you would call it. Um, you know, that seems to tip the scales. You know. Yeah. Exactly. So so there are people who hunt for whom that hunting is a spiritual experience, certainly a more spiritual experience than, again, going to the supermarket and picking up a package of hamburger. Yeah, yeah, where where there's no awareness there in the least. Right, and no connection, no energy exchange between the hunter and the hunted, between the person eating and, and the 
the person, if we want to call it that, being eaten. Well, aside from some of the stories you said already, are there any others that uh, jump out at you that listeners might be uh, interested in? You know, uh, people's you know relationships with um, you know an, you know animals in their spiritual imagination. Yeah, there's a number of different, uh, a few categories that things fell into. I would say I got a fair number of stories about the Rainbow Bridge. Uh, the Rainbow Bridge, for listeners who don't know, is a modern cosmological myth, a, mod- a modern uh, sacred narrative, if you will. It really only dates to um, maybe the middle of the 20th century, and it's about a bridge that connects heaven with another place, a place that is just north of heaven, just to the side of heaven, where the souls of beloved pets rest. And this this cosmology, I think, was developed as pets became more and more a part of, of uh, people's lives, uh, as the practice of keeping pets diffused beyond the elite class and into the middle classes. And people became uncomfortable with the Christian idea of animals not surviving into an afterlife. People really wanted to feel that they would be reunited with their beloved pets, and so the Rainbow Bridge provided that kind of narrative, uh, a place where people could, uh, where human souls could cross to visit their beloved pet in sort of an alternative afterlife. So I got some of that. I also got a number of stories about animal ghosts, people who lost their pets and who experienced that pet as returning. For example, experienced the dog scratching at the door even after the dog was gone, or experienced feeling their cat jump up on the bed and uh, you know settle at their feet as it used to do in life. They experienced that even after their animal had passed away. Uh, there's lots of stories about this, um, people even seeing uh, shadows of their pets after they have passed away. And they're very similar to the stories that people tell about seeing the, or feeling the presence of their loved ones, their human loved ones, after their human loved ones pass away. We've already talked about uh, stories about reincarnation. Um, in addition, among pagans, I found some alternative ways of looking at animals. I found that many people look at animals as symbols, So when they see a particular animal, it will be a symbol for them of, for example, a deity or a quality associated with that animal. I found some of these among non-pagans too, um, mostly related to the death of a loved one or the anniversary of the death of a loved one. So seeing a particular animal on that anniversary uh, or seeing um, an animal at the time that one is mourning a loved one, and it has to be a, a remarkable animal, a hawk, a deer, having that kind of intimate encounter with an animal feels like some sort of communication from the loved one. Hmm. Um, among modern pagans, there's lots of people who have patron animals, animals that they work with spiritually in various ways as spirit guides uh, who accompany them on journeys to spiritual worlds, um, who uh, watch over them uh, in various ways. Um, and I also found stories among uh, modern pagans of people embodying animals, of people uh, going on spirit journeys in which they take on the form of an animal and perceive the world as that animal would do. So those are just some of the different stories or types of stories that I collected as part of this study. 
I wonder if um, in the study um, you got into, for instance, burial practice of, you know, how people handle their pet uh, when they pass, or is that just too morbid? Uh, no, it's not a question that I ask specifically, but we do have, I, I do know scholars who are working on this, particularly with burials of dogs. Um, this is this is a very interesting and complex subject because dog burials, uh, first of all, go back very, very far archaeologically. But in our own society, we begin to have pet cemeteries, animal graveyards, already in the late 19th century. So they're a Victorian conceit. And uh, in, in many ways, we see that extension of personhood to pets in the, in the way that we bury them, you know, and in how we treat them after death. We bury them with grave goods. Do we bury them in a coffin? Do they have a special uh, headstone? And these are all very, they're very touching, sentimental um, tributes to our relationship with beloved pets. Yeah. Well, you know, when our, I, I mentioned our cat Kitty, um, who passed away, when she passed away, um, you know, I, 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 I feel so guilty about this, thinking back on it. I was so emotionally um, overwrought when she died. You know, it didn't even occur to me to um, take her body, have her cremated. You know, um, she was you know, I brought her to the vet, they, you know, they put her to sleep, and I so regret not, you know, having, you know, taken her home with me and kept her with us. So what we did was uh, there was a, uh, there was a historical building that was taken donations, and you could have a name inscribed on a brick. So we put uh-huh. on a brick, you know, in loving memory of Kitty Tate, <laughs> as if uh-huh. she were our daughter, you know, sure. Kitty Tate. Um, yeah. So that, you know, that was sort of a compromise, you know, because um, I felt I had missed the opportunity to do something better, you know. Um, you know, things change through time, and now um, many vets actually offer this service when an animal dies or when an animal has to be euthanized. Uh, they will send the animal to a special crematorium, and when the animal is returned, it's returned in a beautiful box with uh, a poem about the Rainbow Bridge as part of the package. I know because my Iggy, the one who had the heart uh, disease, died a little over a year ago, and our wonderful vet, um, uh, Iggy died at home, but our wonderful vet helped us uh, deal with the body. She sent it to the crematorium, and when it came back, it came back with with this stuff. So this is a pretty pretty recent thing. But then, of course, there's the question of what to do with the ashes. And uh, yeah, and different people have that. That's a question, even with human remains. You know, with yeah. more people cremated uh, after death, what what happens then with those human remains? And that that's a very interesting. And you wonder, will we start to have green burial pet cemeteries? <laughs> you know, that's really oh, taking oh, it to oh. the next level. Yeah, yeah, that would be wonderful. I know what we did with Idris ashes is we took some of them up to Cambria. Uh, a town on the central coast of California where we where, where we vacationed with Iggy. Iggy loved going to Cambria. And we buried some of her ashes there in the backyard of the house that we always stayed in. And we put a little cairn over them. And then I still have the other half of the ashes 
and we just got a beautiful rose, a speckled rose, because Iggy was a, a tortoiseshell cat, and we're going to bury her other ashes in our garden under that rose. Oh, that's lovely. You know, I wonder, Sabina, was there any um, was there you know any clues about how maybe a person's educational level influences these different types of behaviors or uh, these new thought processes? What a great question. We didn't test for that. I don't have any any data about that. But um, just off the top of my head, given the stories, the interviews that I I and my students conducted. I would say not so much, not as much as you think. It is more the quality of people's emotional connection to animals that matters in this. And that's actually something really interesting in terms of uh, what would it take to really revolutionize the way that we treat non-human animals. Uh, I think education might be part of it, but the most important part seems to me that personal connection. Yeah. That personal connection. Once people have made a direct personal connection with an animal, then it becomes more difficult to see that animal as a non-sentient being, as a thing, as an object, as something that we just use for ourselves. Right, right. Well, um, great conversation. Um, Thank you for all of this. Uh, And I so look forward to seeing you Saturday. Um, You know, people who come are going to be in for a real treat. Um, I guess before you go, Sabina, is there anything I haven't thought to ask you that um, you maybe want to add to the conversation? You know, this has been so far-ranging, much more far-ranging than I originally thought, and I'm just delighted with all of the things that we touched on um, I hope that this will inspire listeners to read more, learn more, and uh, maybe think about their own spiritual relationship with animals and how that translates to things like sustainable behavior. Yeah, because if somebody, you know, I, I think if somebody really wanted to do something, if they really care about animals, you know, besides how they treat the animals in their lives, you know, if, if they're looking to do something to make the world a better place, I mean, they could, um, uh, you know, work at these no-kill shelters where they're just dying to have people come and pay some attention to the animals or uh, send donations to, you know, worthy causes or work for PETA or I'm sure you probably know of a lot of different uh, places like that. I would say there's so many different ways that uh, people can help animals from educational efforts to, as you said, uh, there's all kinds of shelters that need volunteers, um, rescue groups that need foster parents for animals. Um, there's, you know, there, there are many, many, many different ways to make a difference in animals' lives. And you don't even have to have spiritual beliefs in order to do this. One of the most surprising results of this study was that some of the people who had made the most complete life changes because of their feelings about animals actually didn't have a lot of spiritual beliefs or experiences about them. It was simply their their dedication to animals, their um, feeling of connection with animals without a spiritual belief or overlay that led them to make these life-changing kinds of um of transformations. People who well, you know, Sabina, we were, we are, for example. 
I was, you know, talking to Kathy Pagano before you came on, and one of the things we, I forgot even how it came up in the conversation now, but the bottom line was <clears throat> it's about the caring, it's about the sharing, it's about the love. That's really what's going to change the world. And, and I, I think that's what we're saying again here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Sabina. It's going to be wonderful to see you Saturday, um, and thank you for coming on the show tonight. For uh, all my listeners across the globe that can't drive to Venice on Saturday morning. <laughs> thank you so much, Karen. It's been a pleasure and a privilege, and I look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Okie doke. Good night, and I have a great rest of your week. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and uh, interesting food for thought there on a lot of different levels. And uh, before we call it an evening, I want to make sure you uh, know about the uh, upcoming goddess conferences uh, that are going to be happening here in the United States. Um, If you're near Nashville, Tennessee, um, July 10th, 11th, and 12th, uh, there's going to be uh, the Goddess Conference there in Nashville. Uh, yours truly is one of the presenters. I'm going to be presenting on reawakening our uh, ancient sacred stories and the importance uh, that those sacred stories are in shaping society and how new stories um, and awareness of some of the old stories that um Uh, maybe so many people don't know about yet, how that could have changed the world and how it still can. Uh, But lots of other uh, great presenters at that Nashville conference. And as a matter of fact, last Tuesday I did a special show uh, with some of the presenters, and I would urge you to listen to it, uh, because even if you can't make the conference, um, there were some wonderful little gems of wisdom that the presenters shared uh, in our uh, in our short conversations uh, with about six of the presenters. And then um, if you're here in uh, Southern California, uh, there's the Goddess Spirit Rising Conference that's going to be held in Simi Valley, which is about an hour nor- north of uh, Los Angeles, and that's on September 10th through 13th. Uh, I am uh, privileged and honored to be presenting there as well. Um, I am going to be doing my talk on uh, reawakening our earliest sacred stories, but it's going to be a writing and storytelling workshop uh, built into that as well as um, you know just uh, just my talk and then I'm also on a panel called is goddess sexist exploring the power of the divine connection beyond the physical body and uh, what that panel is about uh, I'm actually going to be on the panel with a transgendered person and a woman who uh, teaches um, classes for transgendered persons and it's about um, how within uh, goddess spirituality sometimes um, we do have folks that you know, or separatist or practice exclusion of men or transgenders. And, you know, it's a conversation that has been on the minds of a lot of people. Uh, It's a conversation that uh, I think it's, uh, you know, we need to have more of, uh, you know, these sort of talks. Because, um, you know, when we exclude people, uh, you know, exclusion is just a nice way to say we are discriminating against them. And if we're women or lesbians or older or, 
you know, maybe we're not thin or maybe we don't have a lot of money. You know, if we've been discriminated for all of these things, you know, sexism, you know, homophobia, classism, ageism, would we want to turn around and discriminate against other people just because, um, you know, maybe we're not familiar with with them or maybe we've had a bad experience with some men or we've never been in the company of a transgender person so that lack of familiarity might make us uncomfortable anyway uh, just some food for thought so uh that's uh you know that's the panel that I'm going to be on but there are going to be lots of wonderful uh presenters there uh there's going to be vendors and ritual and uh, all sorts of uh, great things going on. In fact, um, the presenters, uh, there's 40 international presenters uh, that will expand your emotional and spiritual horizons. And the theme of the Simi Valley um, Goddess Conference is Earth Mother Wisdom, the Power of Devotion. And you know what, I think that's so important because what I... Uh, experience within goddess spirituality in uh, a lot of different groups is, you know, they were big on learning about the goddess from an academic perspective, maybe even an archetypal perspective, but that reciprocity was not there. That relationship with goddess was not there. Um, That spiritual connection was not there. Or maybe if it was, you know, it didn't actually... um, you know, it, it 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 wasn't actually in how they lived. You know, how people lived their lives. They didn't walk their talk. You know, maybe they weren't treating people in their lives very well. You know, there wasn't the caring, the sharing. Uh, you know, the nurturing, the inclusiveness. Um, you know, there was maybe a lot of that women's inhumanity to woman, or you know, exclusion of people not like them. And, uh, you know, those are things that, at least in my personal opinion, sort of go, you know, run counter to what goddess spirituality is about. So I'm glad that, you know, the topic is about devotion uh, because goddess isn't an ATM machine. You know, I believe it's a, it's, it should be a reciprocal relationship. We ask her to bless us and give us these things and, and bestow upon us, um, you know, her grace and we then have to, you know, do our part as well. You know, acknowledge her, maybe make uh, sacrifices of some kind to her, you know, lead a good life, um, be her voice, you know, be her hands and feet to help the world be a better place. All of those different sorts of things. Anyway, um, also, too, I want to um, make sure you know that uh, May 23rd, we have that other Joseph Campbell roundtable down at the um, beautiful Goddess Temple of Orange County, uh, which if you have not been there yet, please, you will uh, you will be missing an incredible thing if uh, you, you don't uh, make it a point to visit. Uh, it's open to the public Friday and Saturday afternoons for meditation and viewing the beautiful museum exhibits of, of Goddess from the Paleolithic times to the present. Uh, goddess spiritual celebration services are every Sunday, rain or shine, from 11 to 12.30. Then fourth Sundays are for all genders, uh, while uh, the other three Sundays are for adult women. 
Then every Friday from 5 to 7, the Temple's Venus Hour is uh, for everyone. Uh, it's uh, sort of a happy hour with libations, snack, music, movies. Um, you know, if you want to meet people of like mind, um, you know, the Goddess Temple is a place you might want to try, whether you're looking for, um, you know, a, a girlfriend to, you know, have fun with and go to the movies, or you're looking for, a, uh, you know, a male friend who might be, you know, goddess-friendly and cares about empowering women uh, and doesn't have the patriarchal mindset. These men do exist, and uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, go to the Goddess Temple. So for more information, you can go to uh, goddesstempleoc.org, goddesstempleoc.org, and the Venus Hour is free on Fridays. And, you know, you can actually become a member of the Temple for only $25 a month, $25 a month. Um, you know what? What is that? A coffee? Uh, one one coffee a week at Starbucks. Um, send it to the Goddess Temple of Orange County and help them do their work to empower women and teach about goddess. So um, I guess that's about it for tonight. Uh, my guest uh, next week. Uh, it's going to be Trista Hendren. She's back. Um, she is the wonderful author of the Girl God series. She's going to be talking about her new anthology that's out, and we're going to be uh, actually talking to a couple of the contributors, so that should be uh, a lot of fun. It's um, um, uh, you know the anthology is uh, uh, you know about uh, feminists who. Um, uh, incorporate goddess into their life and you know how they are uh, trying to make the world a better place uh, using um, you know goddess spirituality uh, cosmology and as always um, if you like what you've been hearing tonight and in past shows I hope you'll show your appreciation and support you know I put a challenge out there a couple weeks ago and a few of you not many a few of you uh, have gotten on board I said you know what if all of my listeners sent $5. That would pay uh, easily for the show to be on the air for the rest of the year. And anything over and above that, I would donate to someplace like the Goddess Temple. I hope you will consider doing that. Uh, and if you'd like to uh, make a donation of any amount, you can go to my website, karentate.com. Uh, go to the Goddess Store page once you're there. Scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, and that very last button will allow you to make a donation of any amount. And you're also, uh, when you're there, please uh, think about uh, purchasing one of my books. You know, Goddess Calling has been called uh, Comfort Food uh, for the Times in Which We Live. Um, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, the anthology has got rave reviews. I mean, how many people have Starhawk and Noam Chomsky uh, in the same book? you know, uh, and finding common ground. You know, that's just uh, just one example. And uh, my other books, uh, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. You know, summer is upon us, and you can actually take that book, whether you're in the United States or Europe, uh, and drive to your own uh, sacred goddess sites. You can put together your own goddess pilgrimage. Uh, so think about that. And uh, Walking an Ancient Path is my other book. I uh, sort of think of it as um, 
you know, whether you're a newbie or you're somebody who's just looking for a fresh approach to incorporate goddess spirituality into your life, into your community, uh, that's a good one. Uh, the Earth section talks about spiritual uh, pilgrimages that I've made over the years. The Air section is about how we communicate with goddess. Um, you know, it, you know that's just part of it. Uh, the water section is about our emotion and rituals. The fire section is about our passion and creativity, politics in the community, about the importance of the goddess Sekhmet, um, you know, how to make your own sistrum, some great meditations, um, lots of good stuff there. Uh, that book still sells really well, and uh, that's not the newest one. So thank you, dear listeners. Thank you so very much for your listener loyalty. Um, please be back with me um, on May 13th. I believe that might be next Wednesday uh, when I have Trista Hendren and some of the uh, women from her anthology on the show. And then um, on the 19th of May, uh, Gianna Ciccelli, who is the speaker uh, for the other Joseph Campbell Roundtable at the Goddess Temple of Orange County on May 23rd. She is going to be here on the show discussing the topic that um, she will present uh, for the Roundtable, which is the sociology of religion, differentiating magic and witchcraft from religion. So if you know you won't have to miss the talk, um, you know, you will be able to hear her uh, on the radio if uh, you're not within driving distance of the Goddess Temple. And, you know, these Joseph Campbell Roundtable uh, presentations, these are free. Um, I consider them, you know, in a continuing education to help awaken and raise awareness and, um, uh, you know, teach us, uh, you know, teach us what we fail to get probably uh, and uh, you know, in in our, our our days when we were in school, when we were in college, you know, maybe uh, you know these were things that uh, were just missing because maybe where we grew up, uh, these sorts of things were not in the curriculums. So anyway, I think that about does it for tonight. Um, I will close tonight's show with uh, a little bit more from Celia. And the song that we opened with, uh, I think if I, yeah, please forgive us. Um, so enjoy. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Uh, it has been beautiful outside. Go out and be a part of nature. Let her heal you. Uh, I promise, I promise, I promise you will feel better. Good night, dear listeners. Until next week, find your sacred roar, and may she embrace you in her golden wings.
Been so blind. 